Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. I'm very excited about today's guest, Dr. Nathan Bryan. I met Dr. Bryan in Las Vegas, where he was lecturing at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine Conference on nitric oxide. For those of you who don't know, nitric oxide was awarded a Nobel Prize for its discovery, and it was named Molecule of the Year by Science Magazine. Dr. Bryan is an innovator, biochemist, and professor who made quite the name for himself as a pioneer in nitric oxide drug discovery. He holds numerous patents and is currently involved in an FDA clinical trial for the use of nitric oxide in the treatment of COVID-19. Dr. Bryan has published a number of highly cited papers and has authored and edited five books. He has made appearances on the television show, The Doctors, and today he's making an appearance on the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to him about everything nitric oxide, so welcome to the show, Dr. Nathan Bryan. Thank you, Amy. It's a great honor and a pleasure to spend some time with you. So I want to get started with you telling people how smart you are and why they should listen to you about nitric oxide today. So give us a little background. Uh, well, I don't know about the smarts, but I can give you my background, certainly. So I, uh, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in biochemistry from the University of Texas at Austin. From there, I went on to LSU uh, School of Medicine, where I completed a PhD in molecular and cellular physiology. And then I did my postdoctoral fellowship up in uh, Boston University School of Medicine in the Whitaker Cardiovascular Institute. And really, during that time, now more than 20 years, I spent really doing one thing, and that's studying nitric oxide in the human body. What goes wrong in people that can't make it? And then what are the clinical consequences? And then how do you fix this underlying problem? And why did you pick nitric oxide? What intrigued you about it? Well, you know, it was, so during our my PhD, we have to do rotations and find different, you know, research labs that, number one, were taking students, and number two, had something, a, a line of research that was interesting. And in 1998, a Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of nitric oxide, so it was new. In fact, at that time, I didn't know anything about nitric oxide. In fact, I don't even remember, I was taught in um, inorganic chemistry during my undergraduate days. But one of the guys who won the Nobel Prize came to Shreveport, Louisiana and gave a lecture, Lou Ignaro, and I had a chance to spend some time with him, have dinner with him that night, and it really intrigued me about this molecule. And he was quite shocked that a Nobel Prize had even been awarded because they knew it was important, but there was so little that they knew about it and, you know, how the body makes it, you know, what goes wrong in people that can't make it. And then at that time, there were really no safe and effective nitric oxide technologies on the market. So that really intrigued me, you know, with uh, something that was really important, but there was still a lot to be learned from it. So I joined a lab that was focused on nitric oxide. He was a pharmacologist from Germany, and it was during that time we developed these methods and techniques where you could detect low levels of nitric oxide in biological tissue. Because nitric oxide is a gas. When it's produced in the body, it's gone in less than a second. And it's really, it's like nanomolar concentrations, which is like 10 to the minus 9. So it's very low concentrations. It's a very potent molecule. And it's gone in less than a second. So as you can't imagine, it's very difficult to then detect and diagnose nitric oxide deficiency in a number of different diseases. 
And we, we developed these techniques that you could do that. And that really provided us with an armament of tools. And really what we went on to do was, was identify a fingerprint of NO biology and from heart disease, cardiovascular disease, ischemia reperfusion injury, all these relevant conditions that had immediate human practicality and utility. So the listener that doesn't know anything about nitric oxide, in layman's terms, how would you describe nitric oxide to them? What does it do for your body and why is it so important? Well, probably the best analogy, there's really nothing like it in the human body, but the best analogy would be it kind of likes, it acts like a hormone. And what hormones do is it signals the body to do something, right? So nitric oxide is a gas. It's produced by the lining of the blood vessels. And then it signals that blood vessel to relax and dilate so you can increase oxygen and nutrient delivery to downstream blood vessels. In the central nervous system in the brain, it's a neurotransmitter, so it's how cells in the brain communicate. And it's how our immune system kills off invading pathogens from viruses to fungal infections to bacteria. And so it has a really broad role. And a loss of nitric oxide is the earliest event, the onset and progression of every major chronic disease from heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease, pulmonary disease. You have a quote on your website that I actually wanted to read because it says, most if not all chronic diseases, including cardiovascular disease, the number one killer in men and women worldwide are characterized and associated with the loss of nitric oxide production. Loss of nitric oxide production is the earliest event in the onset and progression of chronic disease. Now, I always say inflammation is the root cause of all disease. You have to get rid of inflammation, but maybe I should be taking it a step back even farther. And it's nitric oxide deficiency that's actually the root cause of all disease, right? Because nitric oxide and inflammation are directly correlated. That's right. Inflammation is a consequence of reduced nitric oxide production. So you're right. Inflammation is the killer. It's been recognized for a number of years. But when your body produces sufficient nitric oxide, you suppress the inflammatory response. When you lose nitric oxide, you get chronic inflammation. And we've shown, in fact, a number of my patents are on methods of reducing inflammation through nitric oxide. So we know that if we can restore the body's ability to make nitric oxide, any inflammatory-based disease, which is most of them, can be remediated. It's so interesting because I feel like we just run around in a state of inflammation these days because of environmental toxins and what we're eating. And it's just like a constant state of inflammation. And you mentioned it difficult. It's sort of difficult to test for nitric oxide. And is that because it's a gas and molecule size? Because it's not as simple as a serum test, like if we were to test somebody's hormones or our vitamin D. And we've tried those strips from time to time, but they seem to be, in the clinical setting, sort of difficult for us to implement. Right. Yeah, it is, so it's, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to measure free nitric oxide. I mean, we can do it in a research lab, nitric oxide coming off individual isolated endothelial cells. But in an intact human, you can't do it. So what we did, you know, more than a decade ago was try to figure out how can we assess nitric oxide availability in humans. And so we developed the uh, bedside test strip or the the point of care test strip. And so what we're measuring there is salivary nitrite. And that's determined by a number of things. So if you're low, there are no false negatives. You're low. Then we got to dig a little bit deeper and figure out, okay, why are you low in nitric oxide? Do you have endothelial dysfunction? Are you using mouthwash? Are you not eating enough green leafy vegetables and getting enough nitrate from your diet? Are you on antacids and proton pump inhibitors? So those are kind of the five main causes of nitric oxide deficiency. But there are false positives. 
because you see this, and I'm sure you've done, you've seen it in your clinics where you've got, you know, overweight person that's hypertensive, diabetic, metabolic syndrome. I mean, the gamut of symptoms that all point to a nitric oxide deficiency. You test their saliva and they light up like a Christmas tree. So that is not indicative of, of repleted nitric oxide. What that indicates usually is that they've got an active oral infection, whether it's, you know, gingivitis or periodontal disease or an infection, an asymptomatic infection from a from an infected root canal. And that tells us that there's an acute immune response happening in the oral cavity. And then what that does is it shuts down total body nitric oxide production. So I think they're a good tool to have in your toolbox, but you know, you have to understand the the caveats of that test strip. And I think people can go online and get those test strips. If, if we're not doing it in the clinic, I think they can hit Amazon and there's some a few reputable brands out there where they can just do it in the comfort of their own home. You mentioned PPIs, protein pump inhibitors. I can't stand them. We can't stay, stay our providers can't stand them here at the clinic. Well, they're easier to get these days. They're overprescribed as well. And I kind of want you to talk through why that impacts somebody's nitric oxide production. Well, I can understand why your why your providers don't like it because they're making people sick. Most of the time they're coming to see you and your providers because they have an underlying issue and the proton pump inhibitors or any acids for that matter. PPIs are the worst. But they basically shut down total body nitric oxide production. So there's two ways the body makes nitric oxide. One is through the enzyme in the lining of the blood vessels called nitric oxide synthase. And then the other is through the metabolism of nitrate that you get from your diet. And that pathway is dependent upon oral nitrate-reducing bacteria and stomach acid production. So if you take PPIs, you eliminate stomach acid secretion. So the gastric lumen increases in pH. So you shut down the nitric oxide that's being produced in the lumen of the stomach from swallowing your own saliva. But perhaps most concerning is that it inhibits an enzyme called DDAH. And I'll spare you with the biochemical term. But the consequences of that is you get an accumulation of what's called asymmetric dimethyl L-arginine or ADMA. And you can actually test for this in the clinic, ADMA and SDMA levels. And so this acts as an inhibitor of nitric oxide production in the lining of the blood vessels. And so now it's clear there's a mechanism whereby PPI shut down nitric oxide production from both pathways. And there was a paper published out of the Methodist Hospital by my good friend and colleague, John Cook, several years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, showing that patients who had been on PPIs for three to five years had about a 40% higher incidence of heart attack and stroke. That should be cause for concern. A single medication that you're taking increases your risk of heart attack and stroke by 40%. And so that's that's the cardiovascular consequences of it. The other problem with antacids is you can't break proteins down into amino acids. So then what happens is you get these peptide fragments that are absorbed across the lining of the gut and you develop immune reactions. So it causes foodborne allergies. It causes autoimmune issues. It's so interesting that you mentioned the immune reactions and foodborne sensitivities people will start to develop because we do some micronutrient and food sensitivity testing in the clinic. And we see a lot of interesting things like yeast overgrowth or polyactive results, meaning their body's creating antibodies and having an immune reaction to numerous foods. 
And a lot of these patients, they are taking acid-reducing stomach medications, but don't really think anything of it. And I'm not sure if that's because you can get so many of them over the counter now or if they're just being over-prescribed. But if someone is taking a medication like Zantac or Prilosec and also taking a nitric oxide supplement, are they receiving any benefit at all? And I know there are only a few effective nitric oxide products on the market. So I'm specifically referring to the supplement we use in the clinic, which is Neo 40 Professional. Yeah, they are. That's the only product technology in which they are, because, you know, I designed that technology more than uh, 12 years ago, understanding the effects of stomach acid and mouthwash use. So what we had to do was create a product technology that would generate nitric oxide regardless of what you were doing, regardless if, if you were on a, an acid or regardless if you were using mouthwash. So when you put that lozenge in your mouth, it generates nitric oxide the same amount, the same extent, and the same person, whether you're taking antacids or mouthwash or not. But all these other products that are reliant upon the body's own pathways, there's no benefit from those types of products. Okay. I was in dental for seven years prior to doing this. Um, I, we never talked about that. But you mentioned mouthwash and toothpaste. And this is a tough one for people, one, to get their mind around, and then two, to find products that they like. So walk through what a fluoride toothpaste or mouthwash can do to your nitric oxide and the bacteria in your mouth. Yep. Let me take a, one step back, Amy, because you, you hit on a very important point here that, I, that can't be overlooked. You're saying you do micronutrient analysis and find that a lot of these patients are deficient in many nutrients. And that can be explained by lack of stomach acid because you need stomach acid to absorb B vitamins. You need stomach acid to absorb magnesium, selenium, chromium, iodine, even iron. And if you can't make stomach acid, then your body can't absorb these. So that explains right there. You get people off antacids, their body has what it needs to then heal itself. So that's part of the problem. And then the second problem you hit it on was, you know, the oral microbiome, which we've been studying now for probably 15 years. A lot of research has been put into the gastrointestinal or the gut microbiome. People forgot about the oral microbiome. That's the first environment that we're exposed to. So when you're using mouthwash, and this has been, we've published a number of studies on this. And you know, if you use mouthwash, it causes your blood pressure to go up. If you use mouthwash, you lose the cardioprotective benefits of exercise. And mechanistically, we know why, because you're killing not only the bad bacteria, but you're killing the good bacteria that are there to generate nitric oxide and metabolize the nitrate you get from your green leafy vegetables into nitric oxide. The other problem is fluoride toothpaste. People have to stop using fluoride. Fluoride's a neurotoxin. It kills your thyroid. To me, it's not surprising why we have an epidemic of hypothyroidism. And then three, it's an uh, antiseptic. It kills the bacteria. So you've got to get rid of fluoride. And, you know, they put fluoride in our drinking water. You have to use a home purification system. You have to rid yourself of fluoride. So what type of toothpaste do you use? Because finding a good non-fluoride toothpaste is hard. So what brand do you use? Do you know? Well, I use, I've tested a lot of different toothpaste as you can imagine. What I currently use is, is a product called Himalaya. It's fluoride free. It's a, it's a good, I think it's a good toothpaste. It's not a great toothpaste, but it certainly beats the ones that are available on the market that contain fluoride. But, you know, I'll give you a little insight here. We're in the process of developing both a nitric oxide friendly toothpaste and a nitric oxide friendly mouth rinse. Because as you said, you made an important point. You know, some people want to use a mouthwash because they want the fresh feeling 
of a clean breath. And, you know, you can do that without disrupting the diversity of the oral microbiome, but it hasn't been done. And so I like doing things that haven't been done. So dentists obviously understand the importance of the oral microbiome, and they know the correlation between gingivitis and heart disease, and many of them are taking it even further and asking those questions to their patients upon check-in. So where's the disconnect between recognizing that by recommending fluoride toothpaste and mouthwash that it's actually kind of doing what they're trying to prevent? That's right. Right? It goes back to the saying, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. When the dental practice and the American Dental Association make these recommendations and create a so-called standard of care, you know, it's kind of like the American Medical Association. When they create standard of care, if you divert from that, then you're putting your license at risk. So these big, very powerful organizations just don't get it. We saw that with COVID, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it's called, that's what science does. It's, it changes the way and we evolve. We learn new things and we, if we don't pivot and adopt and practice what we've learned over the past 20, 30 years, then what's it for? You have to be able to implement the new findings that science reveals in the clinical practice. And if you don't, you're negligent. And how many days after, let's say, stopping the PPI or changing to a fluoride-free toothpaste, does your body start to create nitric oxide like it was meant to do or normally would do? Well, we published this in, I think, 2015. And we put this as a, a study we published where we put people on a mouthwash for seven days and looked at their oral microbiome and measured their blood pressure and then stopped them. And we, we monitored them for for out to, I think, a week. But after four days, the oral microbiome appeared to reestablish, regrow, and then their blood pressure began to normalize. So it t- it's not going to happen overnight, but we found in our, in our study that if you wait four days, then the oral microbiome repopulates, you improve that diversity, and your blood pressure will normalize. Are there any other medications that impact the nitric oxide, such as statins? Yeah, statins, it's a, you hit the nail on the head. Statins do that. And, you know, the guidelines now try to get your cholesterol below 200. And I think that's very dangerous. The human body is not designed to have cholesterol below 200. The consequences of that is low vitamin D. We see that. Low testosterone, low hormones. So you need vitamin D to make these steroid-based hormones like vitamin D and, and, and hormones, testosterone and estrogen. The other thing what we're learning is that in the their lipid rafts in the cell membrane, and a lot of these signaling pathways, including the nitric oxide enzyme, is tethered in that membrane by cholesterol. So if you reduce your cholesterol really low, which everybody's trying to get below 200, then you disrupt that lipid raft and you disrupt nitric oxide production. You see that now in insulin signaling. Chronic statin use has been shown to increase diabetes because you're disrupting the insulin signaling pathway. We need cholesterol. We need healthy cholesterol. Getting cholesterol below 200 is a very bad idea. And I think we're starting to see the clinical consequences of that with increased numbers of diabetes, even cancer, now from chronic statin use. You mentioned two things that I want to talk about. You mentioned nitrites and vitamin D. And I kind of look at nitric oxide supplementation and vitamin D supplementation sort of similar. Like people have a hard time understanding that you are not 
going to be able to lay in the sun all day and get your vitamin D into the normal range. Like most people are walking around vitamin D deficient and the same with nitric oxide because of our food. So you wrote a fascinating book that I've obviously read and talk a little bit about our food supply and why that's impacting our nitric oxide and why it's almost impossible to eat your way to optimal nitric oxide levels. Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, I, I tell people it's really simple to be healthy. It's you got to do two things. You got to get rid of what's toxic in your body and replete what's missing. Because to me, over 25 years in basic science, it's people get sick for two reasons and two reasons only. Their body's exposed to something toxic or their body's missing something that it needs. It doesn't matter if it's Alzheimer's, diabetes, heart disease, or COVID. You address those two fundamental issues and people get better and they don't get sick. So with the food supply, if you review the literature, which we've done for 15 years, you'll see that you need about 300 milligrams of nitrate in a single serving which in some parts of the world, you could eat about 150 grams of spinach or a big plate of spinach and get enough nitrate to then normalize your blood pressure. We've published this on the Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension, the DASH diet. The reason it stops hypertension is because it's replete in nitrate and it lowers your blood pressure. And we've compared you know, a Polish diet, a Japanese diet, a Mediterranean diet to the standard American diet. The standard American diet, you're only getting about 150 milligrams of nitrate per day. So just as most from your clinic, patients are deficient in nutrients like iodine and magnesium, selenium, and zinc, Americans are nitrate deficient. And then in 20, I think 2015, we published a, a nationwide survey on the nitrate content of certain foods, and we found that there's as much as a 50-fold difference from the nitrate found in celery in New York versus in Dallas or Los Angeles. The other thing is organically grown vegetables have about 10 times less nitrate than conventionally grown because you're not adding nitrogen-based fertilizers or standardized nitrogen-based fertilizers to the soil in organically grown vegetables. And so there's not enough nitrate accumulation in those vegetables. So you cannot eat enough organic vegetables to get enough nitrate in your diet to normalize your nitric oxide levels and normalize your blood pressure. So what we do and companies have gotten creative, you create a standardized nitrate capsule that people can take. So it takes the guesswork out. If you don't know if the spinach or the kale or the arugula or lettuce you're eating is going to give you enough nitrate, then you can take a standardized nitrate product and take the guesswork out. My dad's a farmer and I love to garden and uh we have a farm and I got all into it. This needed to be an organic farm a couple of years ago. And my dad would help me with it. And he comes out with this big bag of, I guess it's nitrogen. Is that what you call it? It's just this nitrogen powder. And I was like, what are you doing? I can't put that on the garden. This is organic. And he's like, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> he's like, I'll tell you what, my side's getting the nitrogen and your bed can skip it. And then obviously I read your book a few years ago and I was like, Dad, you can go ahead and put that nitrogen on all the on all the plant beds from here on out. So whenever you, I know you live on a farm, but if you hit the grocery store, are you particular about organic versus non-organic or you're just kind of like whatever looks the best, that's what you're going to eat? Well, I think, you know, people get caught up on organic without really knowing what the hell it means. I think it's important that people have a, a safe food supply. Now, organic is important because it means that there's been no herbicides or pesticides or GMO or, you know, Roundup sprayed on that particular crop. 
that's important. But the downside of that is, is that, you know, most nutrients, including a lot of vitamins and minerals, depend upon nitrogen for the accumulation and the assimilation into the plant. So if your crop or your vegetable has been depleted of nitrate, it's not going to, it's going to be completely devoid of any nutrients. So I think it's important to get nutrient dense foods that are unadulterated with herbicides or pesticides. And that's difficult to do. There's one group that I've known that I've visited in Ohio called the Chef's Garden. And it's really a remarkable, and I think it's certainly the future of farming. The question is, is it scalable to feed a growing world population? But they do soil samples before they ever place a vegetable. They do crop rotation because certain vegetables leave nutrients in the soil. Others take it, so they rotate. And so the beauty of that is that you can buy those vegetables. They're not organic because they understand how you know, agronomy works and the need for nitrogen-based fertilizers, but there's no herbicides or pesticides on it. So you get the benefits of organic with the really a nutrient-dense product. And, you know, I'm, I'm from Texas. I'm a beef producer. I'm a meat and potatoes guy. But I'm telling you, those vegetables are the best. And I understand why a lot of kids don't eat vegetables because the vegetables you get at a standard grocery store don't taste good. These or have no taste at all. Right, yeah, these vegetables that are grown right at the chef's garden are just unbelievable taste. So they figured it out and they're doing it right. I just hope other people follow suit. You mentioned the future of farming. Where do you see that going? Because I'm actually concerned that it might end up going to more commercialized, like corporate type farming, because I mean, we're in the process of potentially my my dad selling his family farm, because who's going to take it over? And what does that look like for the future of our food? Because big corporations typically haven't had our health at the forefront of their most important interest. Well, we have to be more efficient and we have to be more responsible for number one. I mean, if you look, especially in the U.S., the portion size, the amount of food that's my brother's a restaurateur. He owns uh, you know, several restaurants up in uh, North Dallas area. And so you just see the waste. And I worked for him when I was in school. So I see the waste of all the food that's not eaten because the portions are too big and contributes to the, epi- the obesity epidemic here in the U.S. But you're not going to feed a growing global population and give them the nutrients that they need on the track we're on. You can't do that. And especially with GMO vegetables and you, you spray these vegetables to increase growth, but the nutrient density is completely de- it's devoid of any nutrients. So you can feed a growing population, but you're creating a sicker population. And, you know, this just has to work out. It's trial and error. But I think what we're going to realize probably in the next decade or so is that the way that you mass produce food and vegetables is not working. So we have to be more efficient and we have to be more responsible. So since we're on the topic of food, every time I think of nitrites, I used to think of hot dogs. And where do you stand on that? Because it was kind of villainized. And then you see all the grocery stores switching to uncured meat and kind of looks funky and, you know, but that's, that has been the, the movement. So you're like down with a hot dog. Like you don't think it's bad for you. No, certainly not the nitrate in the hot dog. I mean, it's the essence and it's necessary for food safety. So, you know, this started in the fifties where people were detecting, you know, low molecular weight nitrosamines in nitrite cured fish. So then they go, okay, well, nitrosamines are certainly mutagenic and carcinogenic. Well, how do nitrosamines get in there? 
Well, if you add nitrite and there's low molecular weight amines in that food, then you can form nitrosamines. And that's true. Chemically, you can do that. And in 1973 or 72, I believe, the U.S. government changed the Code of Federal Regulations and required ascorbic acid or vitamin C. Now they use erythrobate to add to any cured meat so that that prevents any nitrosamine formation in nitride cured meats. So the story falls apart. And there are a number of epidemiological studies showing increased or a slight increased risk of certain gastrointestinal cancers from people who eat a higher percentage of hot dogs or cured and processed meats. So that's called an association, not causation. But then for that to be causation, you've got to create a biologically plausible mechanism. Well, their biologically plausible mechanism was, oh, nitride in these cured and processed meats, form nitrosamines. When you consume them, it causes cancer. Well, that doesn't work because 85% of the burden of nitride and nitrate exposure comes from eating plants. So if that were true, vegetarians would have a 10-time higher risk of cancers than so-called meat eaters. And you see the exact opposite. In fact, in 2009, we published a paper showing that nitride in the food supply actually can be anti-cancer at certain doses. I edited this book here to address that issue, and this is the second edition called Nitrite, Nitrate, and Human Health and Disease. And I edited this with Joe Lascalzo, who's chair of medicine at Harvard Medical School and chief of cardiology at the Brigham and Women's. And the chief nutritional epidemiologist, Walt Willett, actually wrote a chapter in there. So they got it wrong in terms of implicating nitrite and nitrate and causing cancer. In fact, it's an essential nutrient that's missing in most foods and diets. I wonder when these big meat companies will make a shift and adjustment then. I've given lectures at Kraft Oscar Mayer. I was put on consulting for the American Meat Institute years ago, whereby we tried to change this. And then, you know, we thought we'd made a lot of progress. We, we published some papers and some, some letters of opinion. And then three years later, you see Kraft Oscar Mayer coming out with no nitride added bacon. And I'm going, we just spent five years of trying to write the ship. And then you give in to the consumer demands because they're ignorant and create a no-nitrite cured bacon. So number one, it's, it's, it's consumer deception. It's a deceptive trade practice because the no-nitrite added bacon, or I think they call it, they don't call it uncured because they, that's not right, but they say organically cured or no-nitrite added. So what they do, if you didn't add nitrite to hot dogs or processed meats, people that consume them would get salmonella, listeriosis, and a lot of foodborne illnesses. That's the beauty of nitrite. It kills all those foodborne pathogens. So it preserves the shelf life. It preserves the flavor, the texture, the color of the meat. But what they do is they add celery powder. Celery powder is high in nitrate. Then they add a starter culture of bacteria, usually staphylococcus, And then those bacteria reduce nitrate to nitrite. And then it's the nitrite that cures the meat. So they're not adding sodium nitrite as the curing agent, but they're doing this through adding celery powder, which the bacteria cultures then reduce it to nitrite. The problem with those types of products is you get a highly variable shelf life. There's always some residual bacteria cultures of the staphylococcus that's left over in that meat product, and it's just an inferior product, and it costs more. So I tell people, save your money, buy the naturally cured or the the nitride cured meat products and save a couple dollars a pound. You're going to get a better product. 
talking about additives and ingredients. Is there any additive that when you flip over the back of a, a food label that you just absolutely try to stay away from? Yeah, a lot of these are, you know, dyes, a lot of artificial dyes. I look at sugar, you know, sugar is the number one ingredient on a lot of products. And I think we've got a, a problem with sugar addiction and too much sugar in our food supply. But I don't do shopping. You know, we, we raise our own beef here. We eat our own foods. My wife are you does like John the Dutton over there on your free time? <laughs> John Dunn from Yellowstone. <laughs> Have you watched Yellowstone? I've never seen Yellowstone, oh, but I've, gosh. I've, I've heard the buzz about it. I'm just, I'm just picturing you like ranching out there. Well, I've got several hundred head of cattle on, um, you know, seven or eight hundred acres of land that I farm and produce beef on. I find people that raise animals fascinating because they learn from the animals because that's because they're feeding off of nature and stuff, and their behavior is really indicative of how we were meant to be. And so, I feel like people can learn a lot from just watching animals graze in their natural environment. Well, you do. And, you know, one of the things I do is I go around and observe their poop and look at how healthy their poop is. And if the poop is not healthy in the pasture, then then I've got a problem. Something's wrong with them. And I think we gain a lot from doing, you know, fecal analysis in humans. You can detect a lot of diseases and a lot of bacteria that um, and a lot of problems. And, you know, this whole advent of fecal transplants to cure things like many different autoimmune diseases and things like that. I mean, it really gets, it's a, it's a diverse, I mean, humans, any animal, I mean, I'm observing cows, physicians are observing humans, but there's a lot to be gained from by just making simple observations. So moving right along from inspecting poop on the farm to erectile dysfunction, the providers at Victory treat a lot of erectile dysfunction. And we not only think that the Neo 40 supplement that we discussed earlier is really important for overall health optimization, but we do think that any man that has erectile dysfunction and is using a PDE5, such as Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, should also be taking a nitric oxide supplement. So I would like for you to explain why it is important for a man to increase his nitric oxide levels if he is using a PDE5. Well, erectile dysfunction is basically the inability to dilate the blood vessels of the sex organs to allow increased blood flow and engorgement, which is what causes an erection. It's an influx of blood into the penis. So if you can't dilate the blood vessels because you can't make nitric oxide, you will not get engorgement. And it's it's a very important symptom. You know, it's socially inconvenient, but clinically it's a very important symptom because if you've got endothelial dysfunction in that particular vascular bed, you've got endothelial dysfunction in your cranial arteries, you've got endothelial dysfunction in your coronary arteries, and you've got systemic disease. So what happens? You give them Viagra. Some men respond, some people don't. And in fact, we know from you know, several decades of on the market, 50% of the men that are prescribed PD-5 inhibition therapy don't respond with better erections. And so these drugs work downstream of nitric oxide. Those blood vessels need to make a little bit of nitric oxide to increase a second messenger called cyclic GMP. And then that's what causes the blood vessel dilation. And then drugs like Viagra prevent the breakdown of cyclic GMP. So nitric oxide turns the switch on and these PD-5 inhibitors leave it on. And that's the reason you're warned against four-hour erections, headache, the blue vision, all the side effects, is because there's no off switch anymore. But if you have non-responders to the PD-5 inhibitor therapy, that tells you that they're not making any nitric oxide. And we actually did a clinical trial with a group in Arkansas, Arkansas Urology, 
And we took non-responders to PD-5 inhibition therapy, put them on our nitric oxide for 30 days, and everybody responded with better erections. So we basically prime the pump, if you will, and we make these PD-5 inhibitors work better. And then you can titrate down the dose and mitigate the side effects of them. It's a beautiful combination because you're getting to the root cause of the erectile dysfunction and you don't need as much drug therapy with all the side effects if you can prime the pump and make everything work. Are you familiar with wave therapy and how it helps the production of nitric oxide? I am. So it basically is creating like micro trauma, right? And part of what the immune response in our body's innate healing is to go to a site of injury and that causes an infiltration of immune cells, generate a lot of nitric oxide to kind of repair the tissue, revascularize it, and then hopefully make good endothelial, healthy endothelial cells so those can make nitric oxide to improve vasodilation and improve erections. Yeah, we notice a drastic increase in their erection quality right after they do wave therapy. And for people that don't know, the wave therapy helps break up the calcium and plaque that line the vessels of the arteries. Their flow blood can flow faster and therefore it can produce nitric oxide. Correct? Yeah, look, I think the beauty of it is you have lots of tools in your toolbox now that you can make people better. But it all goes back to understanding cell biology and how the human body works. And if you don't restore nitric oxide... Your ED is not going to get better. Your high blood pressure is not going to get better. Your vascular dementia is not going to get better. It's going to progress to Alzheimer's. Your body cannot and will not heal until you restore nitric oxide production. I want to talk a little bit about COVID-19. When, when I saw you in Vegas a couple of months ago, you were in the process of an FDA-cleared trial, correct, for, the, for using an NO lozenger in African-Americans and Hispanics. So I just kind of want to get an update on where you're at with that and what you're seeing. Yeah, you know, the data are pretty remarkable to date. So we got our, our investigational new drug application approved, I think, in July of 2020. We started enrolling patients in November of 2020. And really what we were trying to do was take the highest risk patients. These are African-Americans and Hispanics, 50 to 85 with an underlying comorbidity, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, previous heart attack. As we know now, most people that get COVID recover, they're not hospitalized, they get, may get mildly sick, mild symptoms, but they recover. But there are certain populations that if they get exposed to COVID, they get extremely sick, they're hospitalized, they're put on a vent. Once you put on a vent, you know, it's really a slippery slope to, to death. So we thought, okay, everything that we learned about COVID at the end of 2020 pointed to a lack of nitric oxide deficiency or a lack of nitric oxide production. African-Americans are known to have decreased nitric oxide production. It explains all their health disparities. 50 to 85-year-olds are known to have a nitric oxide deficiency. If you've had high blood pressure, diabetes, if you smoke, a previous MI, all that points to a lack of nitric oxide production. And then in 2005, it was published that nitric oxide inhibits the coronavirus, CAR-SOV1. It inhibits the replication. So here's how we explain it. If you're nitric oxide deficient, and you get exposed to COVID, primarily in your airway epithelium, your body can't elicit a robust immune response because it can't make nitric oxide, it can't divert blood flow, and then your immune cells can't make nitric oxide to inhibit the replication of the virus. So what happens is the virus propagates, it replicates, it goes and attacks all your endothelial cells, it reduces the oxygen-carrying capacity of your hemoglobin and your red blood cells, you get hypoxemia, you're put on a vent, supplemental oxygen, 
and you die. So we thought, okay, that pathway is very clear. If we give nitric oxide as an early treatment within 72 hours of symptoms, can we reverse that sequela of events? And what we're finding is if you start the therapy early on, and we can actually see this. It's a double-blind placebo-controlled study. We have, I think, 26 clinics around the U.S., and we remotely monitored them through telemedicine. So they put a pulse oximeter on, they get a reading, it uploads to their telemedicine port, and we can monitor their blood oxygen saturations. And then we see patients with blood oxygen saturation of, say, mid-80s, high-80s, and then we send them a text, have you taken your study medication? Most of them say no. Some of them take it 10 minutes later, nothing happens. Other populations take their blood oxygen saturation 10 minutes after, it's at 98. So we can actually see, in fact, the the guy who's running the clinical trial said this is the first study he's done where he can actually tell who's getting the active drug and who's getting the placebo based on the improvement in oxygen saturation. So as an update, we're, um, you know, it's been slow. It's difficult to enroll African-Americans and Hispanics with COVID into an investigational new drug trial. We're not like Pfizer or Moderna with the government doing the trials for us. We're self-funded, small biotech company. But we're getting there. We've enrolled close to 200 patients. I hope to have the COVID study finished, hopefully this year. And if the data continue, I hope to have an approved drug on the market by the end of this year, first of next year. But I think it goes beyond COVID. It's a respiratory environment just like the flu or RSV. So if this works in COVID, this will work for any respiratory-borne illness. So with such good results, you haven't had any success with trying to get emergency use authorization for it? We actually queried the FDA several months ago because we've already seen a statistically significant difference in symptomology. So we give the patients a diary and we monitor their symptoms, and there's already a difference between the two groups. So we thought, okay, can we, actually it was early 2021. The problem is, is that COVID has been so politicized that the regulators are ignoring the data. And here's my interpretation of that. They told us, despite the fact that remdesivir was approved, was doing a very similar study, which we were doing. They didn't see any change in hospitalization, ventilation, or death, but they saw an improvement in the symptoms. So the FDA approved remdesivir on emergency youth authorization for amelioration of symptoms. But yet, the data that I've seen, it actually does more harm than good. We had better response, and the FDA's advice to us was, don't unblind the data, don't go for emergency youth authorization, go for full market approval, complete the study. So that's what we were doing. But now as I look back, if they would have approved our drug early on, then you know, the emergency use authorization goes away if there's a safe and effective drug on the market. Right. So I understand what you're saying there. I actually got COVID and I took my Neo 40 religiously. I'm not saying it would happen for everybody, but I had no issues. I had very mild symptoms and I I went on about my business. So I was very grateful to have my nitric oxide in the house. (laughs) Well, thanks. You know, we've heard this from hundreds, if not thousands of people. I've never had COVID, and I'm on a plane every week since probably April of 2020 at the very start of COVID when I was one of five people on an airplane in many cases. I'm in these COVID clinics. I don't wear a mask, and yet I've never had COVID. I've even had my antibodies tested thinking, well, maybe I got it, and my symptoms were so mild 
that I developed antibodies, but I I don't even have antibodies against it. So that explains a lot because, you know, even before COVID and the flu, we're all exposed to viruses every day of our life. Some people get sick. Some people don't. What makes some people sick? What makes some people not? It all boils down to the underlying health and, and the immune system and nitric oxide allowing your body to mobilize a robust immune response and shut down the virus before it ever can take hold. Well, it's a good thing Joe Rogan didn't talk about nitric oxide or you would have really had that FDA trial shut down. (laughs) So since you've never got it yet, I'm just kind of curious, what supplements are you taking on a daily basis? Like, tell us what's in your medicine closet or pantry or wherever you store your supplements. What do you take on a daily basis? Well, obviously, I take my nitric oxide. I take a nitrate capsule from a company called Berkeley Life because based on our own studies, we don't get enough nitrate. So that provides a good level, a standardized amount of nitrate that we get that I'm probably not getting from my diet. But I replete a lot of trace minerals and nutrients. I use a product called a humic and fulvic acid, which has a lot of trace minerals and raw materials in it. At night before I go to bed, I use a a protein shake that basically contains a lot of amino acids, a lot of trace minerals and nutrients, vitamin D, B vitamins, folic acid, really everything that basically gives the body what it needs to heal or to make a new cell. So at night is when we regenerate, it's when we heal, but we can only regenerate cells if we have all the raw material on board to make a new cell that works properly. And then I sit in a sauna every night, an infrared sauna. I was going to ask if you're a biohacker. I knew you had to be sauna or infrared lights or something going on. I do. I heat it up to 170 degrees and I put my body in it and I sit in there for 20 minutes and you sweat, but you're getting infrared light therapy. You're breathing hot air. So if I've been exposed to any infectious agent in my upper respiratory that day, it kills it. And then I have a hyperbaric chamber that I get in usually three times a week. So a lot of the biohackers are getting into the glucose monitors and there's a lot of companies hitting the market now, Levels, Nutriscience, so on and so forth. Have you seen any correlation between glucose spikes and either your nitric oxide supplements that you're familiar with or not supplementing nitric oxide causing fluctuation in glucose levels? Because we've been asked. Yeah, we have. We, we published on this in Diabetic Animal Models, I think back in 2006 or 2007. But if you replete nitric oxide or if you give nitrite or nitrate, you enhance the glucose uptake. So in these diabetic animals, we improved their fasting glucose levels. We decreased insulin production because we're making that. It's, it's similar to, to Viagra. So just like there's cyclic GMP-based signaling, we can enhance that. There is insulin-based signaling. We can make glucophage or metformin. These AMP kinase drugs work better because all of them are dependent upon nitric oxide production. So yeah, we've seen it both in experimental animal models. We've published that. And we've seen it clinically in a number of patients, but we haven't actually done a clinical trial on that. So my last question for you is, are there any books that you're reading currently or podcasts that you listen to that you could recommend to us? You know, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts unless somebody sends it to me or recommends it. I'm reading a book now by Tom O'Brien, who's a a friend and colleague called You Can Fix Your Brain. But really it talks about and it's, it's kind of in line with my way of thinking is you've got to remove yourself from the source of exposure of a number of toxins and then give the body what it needs and the body's designed to heal itself. So again, if you rid yourself of toxins 
and I think are, are things that are bad for you, like mouthwash, fluoride, infected root canals. EMF, I think, is a big deal. Glyphosate, Roundup on food. Stephanie Sinnoff's work up at MIT clearly shows that it destroys the nitric oxide synthase enzyme. And then you replete missing nutrients, like everybody's deficient in iodine. Another big supplement I take is iodine because we need iodine to make stomach acid. We need iodine for our thyroid to work. Every single cell has an iodine receptor on it. And we don't get the only source of iodine from our diet is iodized salt and seaweed. And Americans don't eat a lot of seaweed, at least not in Texas. So we have to supplement with iodine. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. I know you're a busy guy, and I was super excited to have you. And I hope to see you again next year in Las Vegas. Is there a way that people can get a hold of you or your website that you could share with us? Yeah, I have an educational website called drnathansbryan.com. That's drnathanssinscottbryan.com. I do a monthly blog try to write things on, pra- on things that are practical and timely and just some common sense tips on, you know, how to improve your nitric oxide. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Nathan S. Bryan. I'm on LinkedIn. Obviously, you can search me online on any search engine and find some of my work. I have a YouTube channel where we've um, published a lot of our interviews and podcasts and things like that. Thanks for providing those. I hope the listeners go to your social media sites you just mentioned because the work you're doing is incredible. Your work has made a major impact on the clinics and the health of our patients. So for that, I'm extremely grateful to you. If this podcast was beneficial to anyone listening today, please like, share, and rate the show. Every little bit helps. I appreciate you tuning in. Until next time, have a great day.